Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We know Frederick Douglass as a towering figure in America's fight for the abolition of slavery in the United States. In the early days of his ascent, he was allied with and managed by publisher William Lloyd Garrison and the Contessa Maria Weston Chapman. In her new book, The Color of Abolition, How a Printer, a Prophet, and a Contessa Moved a Nation, My guest, Linda Hirschman, reveals the details of the tumultuous relationship between the three and how it changed history. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination, and I am especially grateful for the care that you have taken in discharging your constitutional duty in service of our democracy with all that is going on in the world today. Who is Frederick Douglass? He is a man of principle, a man, a self-starter, a person who essentially robbed the slave owners of their ownership of him. William Lloyd Garrison was a prominent American reformer and a champion of individual freedoms. I'm Linda Hirsch. I tell the stories of the people who made America's great social movements in the past in order to inspire people to keep up the good work now. Sorry, not sorry. Okay, Linda, I want to get to your new book. But before we do, I want to speak about the Supreme Court, because in your earlier book, Sisters-in-Law, you talked about this incredible relationship between Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right now, Katanji Brown-Jackson is nominated for the Supreme Court in another historic first. Can you offer any insight on what that nomination means for us as a nation? So when I wrote Sisters-in-Law, I evaluated O'Connor as meaningful for her symbolic value as the first woman, and she was a very successful first, rather than for the decisions that she made, which were a distinctly mixed blessing. I think that Katanji Brown Jackson will be valuable for her symbolic value as well as the first Black woman on the Supreme Court of the United States. I don't hold out a lot of hope for what her substantive decisions will accomplish because she is in such an overwhelmed minority on the court. If she gets on the court, she's not going to have the votes to make the kinds of decisions that would be meaningful to the society 
unless something very unexpected happened. So I am looking forward to her telling her story. It's a beautiful life story, full of accomplishment, including being a public defender, which is another first. But my interest in the court now is about expanding the court so that it can make decisions that won't undermine our democracy. Yes, and that is a noble mission, one that all of my listeners should also be taking up. And we're seeing evidence that the relationships inside the Supreme Court today are not so great. For example, it's been reported that Justice Gorsuch appears to refuse to wear a mask despite Justice Sotomayor having risk factors for COVID. Tragically, anti-mask insanity has now reached the highest court in the land. That's based on brand new reporting today from NPR, which reveals new fissures opening up among the justices during one of the most consequential years for the court in recent history. The reporting zeroes in on a jarring site earlier this month when the justices took the bench at the height of the Omicron surge, all of them wearing masks except for Justice Neil Gorsuch. Justice Sotomayor, who instead participated remotely from chambers, the NPR report explains, quote, Sotomayor has diabetes, a condition that puts her at high risk for serious illness or even death from COVID-19. And she did not feel safe in close proximity to people who were unmasked. It seems like there's some sort of inner battle going on. Can you tell us a bit about just how personal relationships have shaped the way the court operates? and how that might be affecting us now. I came of age in a time when the court had unusually good personal relationships. That's not the norm. That is actually the exception. So the relationship that I wrote about in Sisters-in-Law, what that alliance, that very fruitful alliance, and also Sandra Day O'Connor's extraordinary social skills at weaving a disparate court together personally is actually the exception. So what we have now with Neil Gorsuch uh, murderously risking the life of his diabetic colleague, Sonia Sotomayor, is more like what we had before the great New Deal justices. There, one of the justices, I think it was Rutledge, on the court was such an anti-Semite that when Louis Brandeis walked into the room, he would leave the room. And of course, the period that I'm writing about in my new book about abolition had the Dred Scott Court, in which the Chief Justice Roger Tawney wrote the opinion that a black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. And the couple of justices who dissented from that terrible opinion did not have good relationships with the former slave owner, Roger Tawney. So what we're seeing now is more the norm than what we, what you and I saw growing up. I want to shift gears and talk about your new book, The Color of Abolition. I guess first, can you give us and our listeners some context on the history of the abolition movement in the Americas prior to the Civil War? So I regard the abolitionist movement as the most important movement in American history, by far, because if we couldn't abolish slavery, then we were never going to make any progress toward being a genuine democracy. We're a lot far from that point now, but 
that was the necessary condition for any future progress. And say it started in 1830 and ended with the Emancipation Proclamation on June 19th in 1863 and 1865. Let's say that's the period. When the abolition started in 1830, one of the great white founders, there was Black resistance to slavery throughout our history. But for abolition to succeed, it had to be an interracial alliance. Wayne Lloyd Garrison, the father of modern abolition, gathered everybody he knew to try to found an anti-slavery society in 1832. He wanted 12 apostles, but he couldn't get 12. He could only get seven. Seven men in a basement in Boston in 1832. And 31 years later, the Emancipation Proclamation. It could not have been a greater cause. So I wanted to write about it because I wanted to look at how they did it so that I could harvest the lessons from it for current movement. And how they did it from that church basement was they made an inter, there were black people there at the first meeting. But they did not sign as directors of the new society. So we think that it took a while before, wait for it, the anti-slavery society got integrated. So the whole movement rested on a base of deep American racism, even the good guys. And just consider what a task they had in front of them. Half of the American exports were cotton. The textile mills of the industrial north ran on slave cotton. The financial giant of New York City, the banks, the insurance companies, the factors, all were financing slavery. They lent money to the Southerners to buy the slaves. They insured the slaves. They ran the slave trade. They financed the cotton crops. And Boston and New York did that. And there were 2 million enslaved people when William Lloyd Garrison started, let's say, and there were 4 million by 1860, as far as we know. Think of the task that they had in front of them. Economists have said that the value of the human slaves in 1860 was greater than the value of all of the other property in all of America, all the land, all the houses. So it was a titanic task. And The Constitution of the United States was a slave document. So it set up a governmental system that was intended to favor the South and didn't favor the South. What a movement. Really incredible. Frederick Douglass. Let's talk about him. How did he become such a central part of this movement? So Frederick Douglass is the youngest of the three characters who drive my book. So he was, Garrison and uh, Weston Chapman were born in 1805, and he was born in 1818. So by the time he escaped, he was not quite 20. Of course, he said they don't tell slaves when their birthday is. So he took February 14th as his birthday. I was born in Tuckahoe, near Hillsborough, and about 12 miles from Easton in Talbot County, Maryland. 
I have no accurate knowledge of my age, never having seen any authentic record containing it. By far, the larger part of the slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs, and it is the wish of most masters within my knowledge to keep their slaves thus ignorant. And in 1838, he escaped from slavery. And it's important to think that he came from Maryland because Maryland was a border state and it had a large free black community. So Baltimore, where he escaped from, was a mixed slave and free community of blacks. And his owners, who were not accustomed to having slaves and they didn't run a cotton plantation, they didn't really need him. So they hired him out and he learned how to fix ships and he would bring all of his earnings to them. And he mixed with the free black community. And we now know that there was a very well-established underground railroad in Baltimore and they obviously helped him escape, but he wouldn't tell the story of what they did for him when he got out because he didn't want to blow the gap for the other people that they were helping to escape. He says that explicitly. And he met in the free black community, his future wife, Anna Murray Douglas. And the story goes that she made him a sailor looking outfit. And they got from the free black sailors who had papers. The black sailors had papers because if their ship pulled into a slave port, they could be pulled off and enslaved themselves. So they had papers to prove that they were free and they would loan them to the enslaved people in places like Baltimore so they could use them to escape. And Frederick Douglass got those papers, even though the description on them did not resemble him. So he was in terrible danger from the moment he stepped on the train out of Baltimore to Philadelphia. He was in terrible danger, but he made it. On September 3rd, 1838, famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass escaped from slavery. By posing as a sailor wearing a red shirt and a black scarf, Douglas boarded a train going to Philadelphia. After his journey to Philadelphia, Douglas ended up in New York City. When finally escaping the grasp of slavery, Douglas was overjoyed. When writing about this moment, Douglas wrote, A new world had opened upon me. If life is more than breath and the quick round of blood, I live more than one day than a year in my slave life. It was a time of joyous excitement, which words can tamely but describe. In a letter written to a friend soon after reaching New York, I said, I felt as one might feel upon escape from a den of hungry lions. Anguish and grief, like darkness and rain, may be depicted, but gladness and joy, like the rainbow, defy the skill of pen or pencil. He got out. He said he breathed his first free breath when he arrived in New York City. I just got I just got chills all over my body. Don't you think that's a moment? I think that's like a New York moment, right? How many people have drawn their first free breath when they arrived in New York City? So he was in the North a couple years, and he was already telling his story in his little black church. And a white abolitionist heard him and said, you got to come to Nantucket to the big convention of the New England Anti-Slavery Society. I want to introduce you to some other people. I want to talk about other incredible stories. Who was William Lloyd Garrison? Now, William Lloyd Garrison, this is like a real intersectional book. I have a white man, a black man, and a white woman in my home. William Lloyd Garrison, the white man, was a printer. He was poor. He was from a very poor family. His family was so poor that his sister was starving and she ate a plant from the garden and it was poisoned and she died from it. There was no social security benefits in 1803. 
He was essentially orphaned. His mother left him behind and moved to Baltimore, left him behind in Millburyport, Massachusetts, um, and moved to Baltimore to try to make some money. So he was essentially orphaned. His break moment came when the, his foster family put him up for an apprenticeship in a printing shop. They apprenticed him to a printer and he found his calling and he apprenticed for many years and then he got enough money. The printer who had been his master in his apprenticeship um, lent him the money to buy his first paper in Newburyport, Massachusetts. And he was a printer for the rest of his life. He was just minding his own business, printing insurrectionist kind of stuff in his paper, but nothing about slavery. When he met the man I call John the Baptist, who was a Quaker and a very early abolitionist, came to Boston where Garrison was living and working as a printer, and he introduced him to abolition. And he was transformed by this encounter. And he went and started his own abolitionist newspaper because he knew the power of print, the Liberator. The Liberator rolled off the press in January of 1831, first issue. So he used the power of print. And print was, as the uh, social media is now, it was the revolutionary media technology because when Garrison started, he would climb up on a chair because he was just a little boy when he was first. Pull on the handle to ink the paper that was passing underneath the printing press. But after a time, the Industrial Revolution came to printing and they put steam on the printing press. And the steam printing press was the internet of the 1830s. They went from a few hundred pages an hour to 4,000 pages an hour. Okay, so I just want to reiterate or iterate that historical narrative of the relationship between Garrison and Douglas. I feel like this book really dives into that so much more so than we've ever seen. So can you talk a little bit about what the historical narrative of their relationship was between Garrison and Douglas? Right. So my project was to write about evolution, but I read that William Lloyd Garrison, the printer, had set the type for Frederick Douglass's great first memoir, A Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. And I thought, what an intimate relationship, right? So I write, the person who takes your story and makes it real in the world is very important to you. And one was Black, Frederick Douglass, and one was White. When like Garrison, wow, what an interesting example of a, an interracial alliance. William Lloyd Garrison felt that he was destined to do great things, but he had no idea how to get there. In 1828, he was 22 years old, newly arrived in the city from his hometown of Newburyport. William Lloyd Garrison was an impoverished northerner who'd lost his parents when he was young, um, and he came across the issue really by chance and, and worked very hard for for 30 years, published a paper almost every week by hand himself to, to fighting against slavery. And so I started reading about it, and it turns out it lasted about 10 years. After Garrison met Douglas in 1841, and it was definitively ended in, with a breach, a very dramatic breach in 1853. So they worked together for a long time. 
And when they work together, the white printer and the black storyteller and prophet, they were incredibly powerful. So a lot of the success story of the movement is attributable to that alliance. There were stresses almost from the beginning. Frederick Douglass was the most extraordinary man of the 19th century. And he taught himself how to read. After his mistress stopped teaching him how to read, he taught himself how to read. He would look at written material on the dock, figure out what it must say, and reverse engineer it in order to right, to figure out what the symbolism of the letters was. This man was extraordinary. And it was clear that he knew from the beginning what kind of life he was entitled to. So when the white abolitionists would treat him as a lesser character because of the undercurrent of racism, even in the abolitionist movement, he recognized right away what they were doing. And he was resentful. So Garrison was the least racist of the Boston white abolitionists. Garrison broke with Douglas Lake. Douglas and Garrison worked together fruitfully and respectfully for a long time. I think that the stress in the relationship came from my third character, Maria Weston Chapman, the Contessa, the beautiful white woman who came to her first anti-slavery society meeting in 1834. She came to a meeting in her gorgeous clothing and with her air of high society. And the people in the meeting thought she was a spy. They had never seen anyone join their movement at that social level. She came to the movement from a very high society position. And think about it. She sacrificed her position in Boston society, which ran on slave cotton money. Okay, so it was not supportive of abolition. She sacrificed her place in society. People would write to her husband and say, why can't you control your wife? She should not be doing these things. And when she would walk into a store, the clerks would turn away from her. So she gave up a lot, and she was fantastically effective. But why hadn't we heard about her before? Let's see. What could be the reason that all those male historians went into the archives, which are full to overflowing with letters to and from Maria Weston Chapman, and yet somehow they managed never to figure out how important she was. So this, you can imagine what this felt like to a writer, right? I started working on the book thinking it would be about Garrison and Douglas. And as I was reading around to get ready to write it, I found a little book called The Western Sisters about Maria and her five sisters and how the family functioned. It was a book about family functioning in 19th century America, which is a very important book. It was, unsurprisingly, written by a woman, but it, it, it hints at the role that Maria played in the abolitionist movement, but it does not tell the story of the role that she played. That remained to be discovered in two relentless years in the archives of the Boston Public Library. What do abolitionists have to do with how we celebrate Christmas? Only the amazing women who decided to fight slavery by spreading holiday cheer. In the 1830s, the United States was already extremely divided over the issue of slavery. Northerners had begun formally organizing against the practice, including Bostonians, specifically Boston's women. 
Inspired by the recent efforts of William Lloyd Garrison, female abolitionists formed the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society in 1833. While many New Englanders didn't support slavery, many were also indifferent toward the issue. The Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society wanted to bring awareness to their cause, but needed the funds to do so. So, in 1834, these women, namely Maria Weston Chapman, Lydia Maria Child, and Louisa Loring, decided to host a small Christmas time fair where people could buy homemade Christmas gifts and meet fellow abolitionists. Fortunately for me, there was a pandemic, so I was trapped, and the letters are online, and I would just sit all day and try to read the illegible letters of Maria Weston Chapman and her sisters. They wrote endlessly to each other. It's a miracle they ever got dinner on the table because they were so busy writing letters to one another. But in the course of reading those letters, of course, I came across the terrible things that she said about Frederick Douglass, how unmanageable he was. And Douglass picked it right up. He wrote to her and said, you try to manage me and you'll lose me in an instant, right? This was a man who did not like overseers. So, Well, he was fighting for freedom. He was fighting and also for his human dignity. And even though the abolitionists were trying to get people out of slavery, which was a noble cause, and the fact that they did not fully recognize their full humanity is bad, but they at least were smart enough to know that these people should not be slaves. So they went a long way. I, you know, somebody asked me in one of the book talks I did if I thought that Maria Weston Chapman was a Karen. And I said, no, that's too simple. She's interesting to me because she's so complicated. I don't want to take that simple approach to her. She sacrificed all of her social standing and worked tirelessly and very effectively. This woman ran the bazaars that made the money that kept the Boston Anti-Slavery Society afloat. Woman who wormed her way into the Beacon Hill High Society Boston family that had a little slave girl concealed in their household because their daughter had brought the slave girl from New Orleans and got lawyers and got her free. Okay. They when they after they freed her, she went to the orphanage for black children and they named her Maria. So Maria Weston Chapman mattered a lot, but there was an assumption that Frederick Douglass and Charles Lennox Raymond and some other Black speakers on the speaking for abolition were owed everything to the abolitionist society and that they were basically to be used for the purposes of abolition which Frederick Douglass figured out wasn't that different from being used for the purposes of the production of cotton. And he did not want to be managed. She mishandled him repeatedly. And finally, at the end, and also he had reasons of his own. It wasn't just that the Boston branch was beating him up, although they were disrespectful and the letters are a scandal, but also he was ambitious. He wanted to be a printer like Garrison. He wanted to have his own paper. And Garrison and the Boston publishers didn't want him to have his own paper. It would be competing with them. So he finally left the Boston movement and moved to uh, Rochester, New York, and joined the New York movement. I prefer to be true to myself, even at the hazard of incurring the ridicule of others, rather than to be false and incur my own abhorrence. 
the New York branch of abolition, which was run by John Jacob Baxter, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. He was the richest man in New York, and he was the richest man in America at, in the 19th century. And he had a partner whose name was Peter Smith. And Smith's son, Jared Smith, was a great abolitionist with his headquarters in the town named for his father, Peterborough, New York. So Douglas left the Bostonians and went over to the New York branch of abolition, which was run by Jared Smith, the son of the richest man in America. And Jared Smith handled Douglas perfectly. Uh, we have letters from Smith to Douglas. So Douglas moves to Rochester to start his own paper, The North Star. And Jared Smith writes to Frederick Douglass and says, welcome to New York. And then he gave Douglas, as he gave many Black Americans, a piece of land in New York so that they could qualify to vote. Not only did Jared Smith treat Douglas like a man, he treated him like a citizen. And he gave him land worth enough money so that he could meet the racist laws in New York. Does this sound familiar to you? New York had laws to discourage Black people from voting at the time. And Jared Smith gave a bunch of people, a colony in upstate New York was called Timbuktu, and they had many Black activists who Jared Smith had given property to so they could vote. And Jared Smith supported Frederick Douglass's paper his whole life that he was around and had lots of money. And he was the main financial supporter of the North Star. It's incredible because it's really, this is a story about intersectionality and in particular, an interracial partnership, but also then Chapman was introduced and that sort of created a whole new layer of intersectionality, which was class, right? So was all of that common in the 1840s? And also just what effect did that all have on these intersectional relationships? So... I have a theory about this, like I have a theory about everything. Maria Weston Chapman came from a fancy Boston family. Her uncle, Joshua Bates, was the founder of Bering Brothers Bank in London, and they were immensely well. Jared Smith came from the partner of the richest man in America, who was also an enormously rich man, but it was a rich New York family. And I think the class behavior in Boston was different from the class behavior in New York. So that the Boston Brahmins, who were, bless them, the soul of the early abolitionist movement. I mean, William Lloyd Garrison got his money from these very fancy Boston families, including the family of Louisa May Alcott, the woman who wrote Little Women. So they supported it. But the Bostonians cared a lot about who your ancestors were. And the New Yorkers really only care about how much money you make. <laughs> so the behavior of the New York branch was fancy, very rich people. Their class and race was different than the intersection of class and race 
Boston. And I also found, so I wrote about Maria Weston Chapman. There's going to be a biography of Lydia Maria Child, who's another underserved woman in the abolitionist movement, coming out this fall by my pal from Colby College. Anyway, she was a woman in New England who, and New York, who did not come from a very wealthy family. But both Maria Weston Chapman, my subject, and Lydia Maria Child reflect the way that forces pulled them away from social activism. People expected them to be responsible for the well-being of their husbands, their brothers, their nephews. They expected Maria Weston Chapman to be responsible for the well-being of her three children and her sick husband. She, her, she had her husband died. So there were th- these women, to look at these women in the abolitionist movement is to understand the path that women have to take to get to be activists themselves. And Maria was enormously aided by her sisters. Her sisters basically raised her children and freed her to be the activist that she was. And she did not, you know, the first churchman rule of a good life, never, never marry a jerk, right? Remember that one? So Maria Weston Chapman did not marry a jerk. Henry Grafton Chapman was a committed abolitionist. And when he died, he said to her, his last words to her, he said, I leave you to the movement. I mean, your book is such a testament to how, and a great reminder to how messy movements are. And I think that's probably a good reminder for us to remember now, through all of these partnerships, through all of this intersectionality and the chaos, history can be changed. And I think an interesting question is, how can the relationship between this trio inform activists today? So the first lesson is, you have to have an alliance, right? You cannot do it yourself. The, if there's going to be social change in America, let's say racial change in America, there has to be an interracial alliance. That's the very first lesson. And people, I mean, well, there was a rebellion in Haiti. The black people in Haiti outnumbered the handful of white people in Haiti overwhelmingly. They could pull it off. But expecting the black slaves in America to emancipate themselves is so unfair to them. There had to be an alliance. And I think today there has to be an alliance because like it or not, white people in America still hold most of the cards. And so you have to be able to figure out a way to make an alliance. From the other side, the white people in the alliance have to learn how deep the racism goes and how easy it is to default to racism. White liberals and progressives love electing minorities. You get to go to the ballot box... You get to take a selfie with your I voted sticker. You get to pat yourself on the back that you made change. And and you believe that we are all moving forward together. But how can we all be moving forward together when there are people missing from the picture? Even the abolitions had this racist undercurrent. And we can learn from my book that you can understand that for you to make a decent America, 
You have to have an interracial alliance. You have to overcome your racism. And there are ways to overcome it. The money that Jared Smith spent getting Black people eligible to vote in New York is sort of like a little version of reparation. So there are things that you can do that will make it possible to have that alliance. Those are the lessons that I would draw. You know, I said at the beginning, I write my book so that I can teach people in the here and now from what I learned myself of the past, how to be successful. And the messiness of it is really a wonderful lesson. My book ends when Douglas goes to Lincoln's second inauguration. And I say, this was the greatest of all the alliances, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And he went to Lincoln's second inauguration and he made his relationship with Lincoln because his other white allies in the political abolitionist movement, which became the Republican Party, his white allies in the Republican Party got him into the White House the first time in 1862 to argue with Lincoln that he had to pay his black soldiers the same pay that he paid his white soldiers. So Frederick Douglass went to the White House. Frederick Douglass, who had been born in slavery, went to the White House to argue with the president of the United States. And he got in because his white allies got him in. And Lincoln was so impressed with him that when he, Douglas, went for his third visit to the White House after the second inaugural, the police at the door of the White House saw a black man coming and they wouldn't let him in. And somebody in the room saw him and recognized it was Frederick Douglass. And that person went to president on the day of his inauguration and said they're not letting Frederick Douglass in. And Lincoln made them let Douglass in. There's no one, said Lincoln, I would rather see. It's a true alliance. We will never know what would have happened if that alliance had survived the assassin's bullet. Our whole history could have been different. So it's you have to have that alliance. In order to have that alliance, white people have to recognize the racism that we drink in with our water in America and that we can overcome. I think my story is intended to teach the lesson that we can overcome it. They also did a bunch of really cool things, like they used the steam printing press to print all this stuff. And they started little newspapers all over the country, local press, local media, very important, still so important. We need to support our local media. And in 1846, somebody laid a telegraph line from Washington, D.C. to New York. So everything that happened in the nation's capital after 1846 could be telegraphed all over the country in what we call a New York moment. And those little local papers would pick it up. And there were then, and they watched what the representatives in Congress did, and they held them to account. So scribble, scribble. And the other thing they did that was so important for the here and now is they did retail politics. So Maria Weston Chapman, the Contessa, and her Fancy sisters walked all over the sidewalks of Boston and they knocked on the doors of the houses and who was home during the day. The women were home during the day and they couldn't vote in the 1850s. But Maria and her troops got them to sign petitions to abolish the slave trade in the nation's capital. So they would knock on the door, they'd find a woman at her kitchen table, they would get her to sign the petition and they would convert her to abolition. 
and then she would convert the rest of her family. I have letters from one Western sister to the other saying, I'll take Newberry Porter, you'll take Denham, and I'll take Boston. Right, these were the women who drove the movement. And um, the closest thing that I've seen in the here and now to the petition campaigns that I wrote about is Stacey Abrams registering the voters, finding the voters in rural Georgia, who the black voters who aren't registered were better off than they were then because we don't have to have Jared giving us money to let the black people vote, but they have to be found and registered and related to and brought to polls and all the things that the movement did reminded me so much of the petition campaigns in the 1830s. As President Biden tries to pass major legislation in the months ahead, he'll have to navigate the narrowest of margins in the Senate. But the fact that he has an advantage at all is due in large part to Democrats winning both U.S. Senate seats in Georgia earlier this month. Stacey Abrams is the founder of several voting rights organizations, including Fair Fight, that fueled higher voter registration and turnout in Georgia and elsewhere. Retail politics, scribble, scribble, have weekly meetings. That's my other lesson. You know, they learned it from the churches. If you meet regularly, you learn to trust each other. And if you meet regularly, new ideas can emerge because you're like getting together and you're cooking stuff up. And if you meet regularly, it helps you not feel so isolated. And I think this is probably one of the hardest times through this pandemic is the feeling of isolation through the fight, because we are activists are used to gathering and protesting and rallying, you know, and this has made all of that partly easier because we get to all be on Zoom and kind of time travel to each other. But also just that energy, that movement energy, I think, is really lacking. As you're speaking about the petition campaign, I'm I'm just reminded of door knocking and canvassing and how it plays such an important role in every single campaign. So I think I want to end this interview with the question I always ask, which is, what gives you hope? The abolitionists knew it was a marathon and not a sprint. They knew this. How could they not know it? There were seven of them in the church basement and two million enslaved people in the gulag of the South. So what gives me hope is that you can run a marathon and you can win. And so the abolitionist movement gives me hope in these very dark times because knowing they had a marathon, they got together, they printed, they talked, they met weekly, they knocked on doors. And I think the odds that we face now, including the Constitution that favors the empty rural red states, is not greater than what they faced. And they were able to beat it. Well, Linda Hirschman, you give me hope. I love you so much. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Fellow citizens, pardon me and allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and 
of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? I am not included in the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. So often women are left out of history. As we've just heard, historians often attribute the move of Frederick Douglass to the New York wing of the abolition party to a rift between Garrison and Douglas, leaving Maria Weston Chapman and her role, positive and negative, out of the story. When we erase women, we erase history. At every point in the story of humanity, women have been integral to the events which unfolded and are unfolding, yet we know so few of those stories. We need to do better. We need to know and celebrate the success of women and learn from their failures. Future generations need to look back on history and see the whole picture in order to measure how far they've come. If we don't know who we were, how can we know who we are? Especially, we need more women historians in universities and publishing houses, schools and other institutions We need women to be equal among those writing our histories. As Linda Hirschman illustrated today, it will change how we understand the story of our nation. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.